That was a, that was a great song, wasn't it? It was a great um, song. It was an awful song. It slayed your self-righteousness. <laughs> You're admitting before God in song that even the good things you do couldn't earn heaven for you, and you need Christ. And uh, I can't wait till we can learn that song and, and sing it ourselves because even those good and right things that we're supposed to do are tainted with motives that aren't altogether good. And that's why it's so good to know that Jesus came here and he did everything right. Not to prove a point, um, but to do it because he loved us. And, and then he went to the cross as if he'd done everything wrong. Not because he'd done anything wrong, but because we have. It's just so good to remember that. We're not here to preach ourselves. We're here to preach Christ because in him we find our hope. I want to begin this morning by um, posing a number of questions that are, for, for the most part, um, controversial questions. Not altogether, but questions that relate to our culture and how we relate to culture. Question number one. What portion of the church budget should support social causes? Next question. Was it appropriate for Christians to vote for a Mormon in the presidential election of 2012 or just, uh, or must one only vote for a Christian to be president? Is it fitting for the church to adopt and observe Cancer Awareness Sunday, as we're frequently asked to do? Should the church promote and endorse a protest against the legalization of gay marriage? Is there a distinctly Christian methodology for things like gardening, dieting, feeding babies, and athletics? If a Muslim-based movement were to lobby for Sharia law to be observed in a segment of America, would it be appropriate for Americans to object in the name of Christianity? Would it be fitting for local churches to lobby against Muslims? Final question, is the church called to redeem culture? Try to choose a sampling of questions, some super important, maybe some not quite so important, some quite controversial, some not so controversial. Just a sampling of real life questions that relate to this. How do we as Christians relate to the culture around us? Or cultures, if you want. How do we as the church relate to the culture around us? Or the cultures, if you'd like. Real life issues, important issues. I'm a Christian. I, I want to honor Jesus in my living. So I've got to grapple with questions like that. I'm also a Christian pastor. And so I've got to grapple with questions like that on a different level. Most of you are professing Christians. And so you've got to grapple with those questions and other questions like them. And what do we want to do? We want to honor Jesus. We want to honor Christ. And so how do we as Christians, different question, how do we as a church live in the world around us, the culture around us? Super important. Now at first blush you might say, we do what's biblical. Good job. Front of the class. Awesome. We do what's biblical. I'm with you. I want to do what's biblical. And so I want to, whether I eat, drink, or whatever I do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, absolutely. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and following. I want to give my, I'm paraphrasing, my whole life as, as an act of worship to God, even dealing with these questions. But it's complicated to be able to answer those questions as we seek to be biblical. I want to illustrate how complicated it is. If you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5, we're not really into the meat of things yet. We're going to eventually talk about Christ and culture and hopefully look at a paradigm for how we relate to the world around us. Um, but just, just to illustrate the point that, how about this? Sometimes Christians are to act a certain way to be biblical. Other times Christians are supposed to act a certain different way to be biblical. And you say, that, that sounds like situational ethics. I know that's not good. That's not right. Because we believe in absolutes. Absolutely we believe in absolutes. But we're going to see in Scripture, sometimes we act a certain way, and other times we act another way. My, my simple point in using this as an illustration is to say, it's not as easy as just knowing a couple verses and, and then I know how to engage culture. 
It's more complicated than that. Let's go ahead and read through this, this chapter. We'll do the entire chapter, and you'll see what I mean. Uh, beginning in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. This is among the Corinthian church. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Just put your finger there for a second. Apparently, the Corinthian church is, is so, um, they're, they're boasting in tolerance. You know what? Grace, 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 tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. And, and, and so they're boasting about allowing this to happen. And he's saying, hey, wait a second. This isn't good, so let's keep going. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. Remember, Paul's an apostle, so he speaks with the authority of Jesus. And, it, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, notice it is talking about this, this, this churchly gathering. When you are assembled, so he's talking to them as the church. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You're boasting. They're boasting about their tolerance. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little, little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, let's just pause there for a second. Another second. Pretty harsh, huh? Judgment. You need, I'm judging that person, he's saying. And you need to judge him by, by saying, you're not welcome here. We're Christians. We belong to Christ. And Christ has paid for our sins. And, and, and Christ has given us new life. Not only have we died with Him, like Romans 8 talks about, we've been raised with Him unto newness of life. And, and the church isn't to be all about tolerance of, of believers who've trusted in Christ. We're, we're actually to live like we're people who've trusted in Christ. And He's saying, you, you, you guys, have, you're confused. Right? Pretty straightforward. Matthew 18 would talk about this. Jesus would talk about this kind of thing. And they're not to be a tolerant church. But then, interestingly enough, he, said in ver he says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now he broadens it. It's not just a matter of having your, your uh, stepmother as your wife. He moves on to say in verse 10, uh, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters, since then, how about this? You would need to go out of the world. You'd have to leave the planet if you were going to say, we're not going to have anything to do with sinners. Ah, you're, you're confused. It, it, this, is my, this is just a guess. I'm not going to say this is how it is. It's like they have it backward. Let's stay away from people who act bad, who are not Christians. And let's embrace people who say they're Christians and act bad. And he's going, you, you, you got it totally backward. You got it totally backward. Then let's keep going where it says in verse 11, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? What's the implied answer? Well, nothing. Uh, is it not those who... Those inside the church whom you are to judge, implied answer is yes, absolutely. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. He's talking to them as the church. You see, Christians are act a certain way in a certain culture. Church culture, we're not going to tolerate immorality. Non-church culture, what do you expect? Why would we try to get non-Christians to act like Christians. They're non-Christians. Now realize that in both scenarios, Christians can say, that's wrong and that's wrong. In fact, in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul in verses 9 and following will essentially say that. So we're, we're not saying that what's right in one context is, is, is wrong in another or vice versa. Both places you can say, you know what, that, that's, a, that's wrong action. 
Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you're violating the law of God. But we, we, we enforce that in one way that's different in another scenario. I'm bringing it up to you, um, not because we're camping on that issue, but I'm bringing it up to, up to you because as we say we want to be biblical in the way we engage the culture around us, it's not as simple as just having your three favorite verses about culture or your three favorite sayings about Jesus. There's actually some complexity to this whole thing. So what we're seeking to do is, is to develop a, a, a paradigm, if you will, a grid to view life through that's more holistically biblical than just your three favorite verses so that we can make decisions and say, here's how I'm going to engage in that situation. Here's how I'm going to engage in that situation. Here's how I'm going to engage in that situation because then we'll be honoring Christ. So to do that, that's why we're going to have our conference in a few weeks on the 28th called Christ and Culture. David Van Drunen, he's written on it on an academic level. He's written on a popular level. Uh, has multiple books on the topic of Christ and culture and how we relate. Um, and this isn't just a big PR thing for that. I really want you to be a part of that because I really want you to be able to think clearly about these issues. And so what we're doing is kind of getting the wheels turning, um, priming the pump, um, uh, starting a conversation about this ahead of time so that when that conference comes, you say, you know what, I've even got more questions. Now I know what the issues are or some more of the issues so you can benefit from that Saturday conference when it, when it comes. So what we're doing is at least uh, taking a, a preview, if you will. So what we're doing is looking at the Christ and culture issue by way of preview, um, seeking to have a biblical paradigm for, for decision-making, engagement, um, on these issues. So seven guiding principles. If you want to take notes today, you'd like an outline. Seven guiding principles for living in this world as a Christian, seeking to honor Christ. Seven guiding principles. Uh, I'm going to review what we talked about last week ever so quickly. I'm a liar. Um, I'm going to try to go ever so quickly. Um, we'll, preview, oh, we'll review the first four, then we'll look at the remaining three. And uh, I'd love to say we're going to get to those opening questions and engage those a little bit, but we won't um, because we need to move on. By the way, Omaha Bible Church week in, week, week in and week out typically is in a book of the Bible um, practicing what I would call expository preaching. We're studying Jesus and who he is and what he did in the gospel according to Luke right now. Uh, we'll return to that. Um, but because this is an important topic and because of the conference coming up, I wanted to take the time. And so this is a little bit out of the norm, just so you know. Number one, the first guiding principle to develop this, this paradigm, if you will, first guiding principle is imitate exiled Israel. Imitate exiled Israel. Meaning, Christians are to imitate Israel when they were outside of the, the promised land. They're in exile. Okay? They're not in Jerusalem. They're not in the land, the, the, the land that God had given them. They're exiled because of disobedience. And First Peter tells us the word to do this. If you have a Bible, turn to First Peter. You'll see it. This is review, so I'm going to go quickly. Sorry to do that to you. Um, just kind of the nature of what we need to do. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, he, he talks about this. Um, in verse 11, he says of 1 Peter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Or some of your translations might not say sojourners and exiles. They might say strangers and aliens. We're not taking the time to go there, but in chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, he uses those same titles. And, and what that does is, it's, it's like a flag saying, think about the Old Testament. Now, 1 Peter, obviously, is in the New Testament. He's talking to Christians. He's not talking to national Israel. But he's using the same language. And he's saying, hey, Christians, church, think about how exile, exiled Israel acted. They were strangers and aliens. They didn't belong. They, they weren't at home. Learn from them. And here as you suffer, and here as you're misunderstood, and here as people think you're weird, or whatever it might be, you're an alien, in other words. Learn some lessons from how Israel dealt with that. It'll help you. Talk about practical. You know, people think you're odd because of your ethics. People think you're odd because you believe in one God. People think you're odd because you believe in God. People think you're odd because you believe that Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. People think you're strange. You might even feel some persecution because of it, or maybe it's just a light kind of thing. But regardless, remember, Christians, 
you're a stranger and you're an alien. Let's connect the dots a little bit more. While we're not Israel, we're to learn from them and yet as they were waiting for entrance into Jerusalem, they were waiting to go into the promised land, anticipating that. Revelation 21 talks about a new Jerusalem that we're waiting for. So we're anticipating that, and if we're going to learn from how Israel dealt with it, you know what? It would make sense this isn't heaven. We're waiting for the new Jerusalem. One other passage we looked at, you can turn to Jeremiah 29, or if you were here last week, you don't need to, that would be helpful uh, in, in this regard. I'll just reference Jeremiah 29, 7. Uh, as you're turning there, if you want to, you don't need to. Um, let me give you another point of reference, and that would be Daniel. Daniel would have been one who would have been exiled. Um, he's, he's trying to, to honor his one God, and yet he's, he's not in the land that is promised. He's in exile. So we, tr- we learn something about what it means to be a stranger and an alien when we look at the life of Daniel. A contemporary of his would have been Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29 verse 7 says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Again, why do we go to Jeremiah 29? I think 1 Peter invites us to go there. We're strangers and aliens. We're like Old Testament Israel when they were exiled. Hmm, what were they like? Well, some of them were doing the wrong things. Some of them were doing the right things like Daniel. So let's learn from him. And, and Jeremiah is giving instructions. So that's the right thing. They sought the welfare of oh, Babylon. Yeah. Now, it was relative. It wasn't ultimate. It's not Jerusalem. There's something to be learned here for us. There's something about Babylon, if you want to call this Babylon. It's Babylonish. Um, Many gods, rejection of God, different kind of morality. Well, we're strangers and aliens. But that doesn't mean we don't seek the good of Babylon in a temporary sense. I think we actually do. We'll say more about that later, I think. But enough for now. Let's learn that lesson. Um, number, number two, another guiding principle for, for this would be uh, see that the church isn't or observe that the church isn't national. Observe that the church isn't national. This is a debate amongst Christians and it has been for a long time. Um, my advice to you is don't see the church as a nation. Don't confuse the church with Israel as a nation. I'm giving you that advice because Jesus, in the Great Commission, a passage you know if you've been a Christian longer than like five minutes, sent his disciples out of Matthew 28, right? 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples of all, what? Nations. The church is multinational. The church is not a nation in and of itself. No, and what, what happens is we're to make disciples of all different nations because the church is a spiritual entity, not a national entity. And then we start filling in the blanks with Revelation 5 and, 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 and the redeemed community made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's not limited to one, nor do they, we have any semblance in, in Scripture that they become one nation. Uh, so we, we have that going on. We have Jew and Gentile together. So that would be an all-nation kind of thing in Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3. I would want to remind you that the church isn't a nation or it's not tied to a nation. Now, here's where we start making this applicable. You said this isn't very applicable. It's just theological. So the United States of America isn't the Christian nation. not saying there aren't a lot of Christians in America. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for Christian values. I think you probably are too. But the church is made up of all nations. There's a reason why there isn't a big American flag, by the way, flying behind me, and there's a cross. I suppose we could put a flag of every nation here because the church is is an all-nation entity. It doesn't mean we can't be patriotic as individuals. That's a different kind of issue. We'll get into that. But, but even if our country is, is oppressing a certain nation right now, if someone from that nation was here visiting, 
They should be able to come to a church and it has nothing to do with patriotism. We're here worshiping the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Not a nationally tied kind of religion. It's distinct, it's unique, it's made up of all different nations, every tribe, tongue, and nation. But if you start thinking the church is a nation or a nationalistic entity, you're going to act different. You're going to think different. Because by the way, if the church is a nation or tied to a nation, boy, we're going to be all about societal change. Because we need to change Jerusalem. I just read an author this week who said the church is the new Jerusalem. The church is the new Israel. Therefore, listen to this. Therefore, if the church isn't devoted to social activism, that church is apostate. You know what? I think that writer is correct. If the church is the nation of Israel. That would be right. But who says we are? We're made up of all nations. You see, this is a complicated issue. As you're thinking through, how about this? As you read your Bible and you say, I've got to make decisions about how to engage my culture. How about the church needs to figure out what its role is in the culture and how to do things? Well, if we follow the Old Testament law for national Israel, we'll look one way. But if we follow the New Testament, learning from the old, yes, like First Peter says, but we see the church is made up of all nations, we will look different. The purpose and focus of Omaha Bible Church will be different. This is complicated. It's doable, but it's not as easy as just three simple passages and you say, we're just going to do what's biblical. So we're rolling up our sleeves a little bit. Hope it's helpful. Hope you're not, I hope I'm not losing you. See, what I want to have happen is, is for you to leave being able to think through life and make decisions as a Christian and for us as a church to make decisions and not have to have people tell you what to do all the time. And not to have you um, constantly tossed here and there by another verse, another text that may not be in context of the bigger picture and how things work and, and, and who you are. A nation? Church nation? Oh, by the way, just as we talked about last time, this is all review. It's amazing. Um, This is why, oh, by the way, we're so embarrassed about what Constantine did. We should be embarrassed. It's called Christendom, a Christian nation. We'll We'll kill heretics. Oh, and by the way, it's the law that if you're part of this nation, you have to be a Christian. Not very helpful in the third century where the church was a nation and the nation was a church nation. You've got to learn something from history too. Okay, let's move on. Are we on number two? I think we are. Let's move on to number three. A third guiding principle for honoring Christ is own that the church... Believe that the church, I wanted to own it with conviction, own that the church is gospel heralding, that the church is gospel preaching, gospel heralding. First Corinthians 1 and 2 are the text. If you want to go ahead and turn there, I'm going to reference one, one of the verses from that section. But First Corinthians 1 and First Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul's leading by example. The Corinthian church, as we know, is totally confused about all kinds of issues, many, many issues. But the, the, the cause of it all is they're confused about the gospel and they're confused about how the gospel works and they're confused about what their role is in the world and what their mission is in the world. And Paul wants to say, I'll be an example for you. I want you to follow my example and here's my example to you. Regardless of what the culture was looking for, regardless of what might have made us look relevant, regardless of what other churches might try to get us to do, let me tell you where it's at for the church. 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. Uh, if you don't know any other passage for this morning, I hope it would be this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. For I decided or I determined or I resolved, depending on your translation, but it has to do with the idea of purposefulness and, and resolve. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
We could look at all of chapter 1. We could look at uh, beyond that. We're just going to go with that text because we're reviewing right now. How critical is it for, for Paul to say there are many good things? Think about Corinth. Corinth wasn't a perfect culture and perfect society and, 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 and wasn't um, fully Christianized, if you will. And he's saying, but you know what I did? I resolved to not waver from the script. I resolved to preach Christ and, and only Christ. And, and, and we know what he means. He doesn't just mean the example of Christ. Well, you know, Jesus um, was committed to justice, and so the church is all about social justice. He was committed to justice. Absolutely he was. But Paul makes it clear that that's not what he's emphasizing here when he says, we, I, I preach Christ crucified. That's code for gospel, work of Jesus, the just one. Well, you know, Jesus was nice, and uh, so we need to be nice too, and we have a ministry of niceness. I'm being a little ridiculous. Well, Jesus would have been nice. He would have been loving. He would have been perfectly nice, perfectly loving, and, and all of those things. But Paul says, I resolved to know nothing among you, among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, we can fill in, fill in the details and know what he means in, in light of the rest of the book. Like in chapter 15, we know he's talking about the work of Jesus, that, that, that Jesus was, was crucified and that he was raised from the dead bodily, right? Well, when, when we're talking about the church preaching the gospel, we're talking uh, about the gospel meaning work of Christ. I'm belaboring that because sometimes we say the church is about the gospel, gospel-centered, gospel-centered. That's super trendy right now. I'm really glad. But sometimes when you say, what do you mean by gospel? Following the example of Jesus. Well, that's not what the New Testament means by gospel. It means the good news about the perfect work of Jesus. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Gospel is of first importance, verse 3, and it's about His historic work. Some 2,000 years ago on a Friday afternoon outside of Palestine, in the real earth as we know it now. The church is about that. That's what we do. It's who we are. We have a very narrow focus. Now, here's an objection. One objection would be, yeah, but, but Jesus said you're supposed to love other people. That should be on there too. Preach the gospel, love other people. You're right. In fact, the most loving thing I think is to preach the gospel. But let's think about that for a second. Love your neighbor. Maybe that should be it. Maybe the mission of Omaha Bible Church should be love God and love neighbor. Well, you can turn there if you want. You don't have to. I'm not going to reference it per se, but I am. Matthew 22, verse 39. Let's just talk about that for a second. Love your neighbor. I was riding my bicycle, imagine that, um, in Florida earlier in the summer, taking a ride, and I rode by a church, and that was the theme of the church on the side of the building. Love God, love neighbor. I said, oh, it's a legalistic church. And you go, what? That's not a legalistic church. Love God and love neighbor. Well, in Matthew 22, where Jesus is put on trial by the Pharisees, or the, 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 the law attorneys, they say, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus, in the law? And Jesus knows the answer. He knows all the answers. To love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with, with all of your being. Oh, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's a summary of the law. So, our church is all about the law. That would be a mistake. Please don't misunderstand. We should love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we should love our neighbor as ourselves. There's just one problem. We don't. We don't. We absolutely don't. And so what happens is we have Jesus who did love his father with his heart, soul, mind, and strength on our behalf. He kept the law and he loved his neighbor as himself on our behalf. And the good news isn't love God. That's damning news. It's God's good law, but it slays us. The good news isn't love your neighbor. That's good, but it, but it slays us. The good news is Jesus did that. He absolutely did that. So what do we proclaim to people? 
Well, we proclaim the work of Christ to people. Now, I guess in one sense, we, we do preach the law, don't we? Because the gospel will never make sense without the law. And so absolutely, we do say, here's God's standard. You should love him with all of your being. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. And we help them to understand that that means perfectly, absolutely, even with good motives. And we help them to understand you can't do that. And we can say, but there's good news for you anyway. Jesus did. Jesus did. This is crucial that we get this. It's like one televangelist said. We don't preach the law to people. We just tell them to love God. That's where I have a Scooby-Doo moment and go, hmm? You go, what? But see, we're so biblically illiterate sometimes. When we hear the law, we think it's the gospel. The law is love God perfectly and we don't do it. So as a church, what are we doing? Our mission in life is to preach the law to people. That'll show them. Preach the law to people. That'll really help them. That's the most unloving thing we can do if that's all we preach. Yes, we'll preach it. But we punctuate it. We we bring it to its climax. We bring it to the place of good news and saying, and Jesus did this. God looks at you now if you're trusting in Jesus as if you'd loved him with your whole life. Heart, with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And God looks at you, Pat Abendroth, you sinner, as if you've loved your neighbor as yourself. You see, that's good news. We've got to remember that, church. We've got to remember that the church is called to preach Christ. Very lean, very simple. This is why historically so many times the church has realized we really do one thing. We preach Christ. That's what we do. We got, we've got to fight against mission drift. There's so many good things, so many good causes. We pretty much are about one thing. We, we, we preach Christ. We preach Him. We preach Him crucified. We preach Him as hope. That means we're all political. And that means we say no to lots of good things. We preach Christ. Now, in a little while, we're going to talk about how you as an individual may need to do some of these good things. But Omaha Bible Church is called to preach Christ. I hope you as an individual preach Christ too. But our mission statement is pretty simple. I received a letter from a missionary um, this week. It's not a letter, actually. It's a paper written by a missionary in Africa. I wanted to read a portion of it to you. This is all review, by the way. Um... <laughs> This is new here. Listen to what he says. This is the opening of the paper. Evangelical missions in Africa is changing. Or more accurately, it has changed. When my wife and I arrived in Africa in 1995, virtually all of the theological, theologically conservative missionaries we met had come to do church planting and leadership training. No longer. Today, nearly all of the new missionaries coming to Africa are focused on social relief. The title of his paper is Regaining Our Focus, a Response to the New Mercy-Centric Trend in Missions. The missionary's name is Joel James. Uh, I'm happy to say he'll be preaching here in June, Lord willing, when he's on sabbatical. What's interesting about that is, it's like here. He actually wrote the paper and sent it to a bunch of pastors that he knows and basically said, can you, can you help by realizing what's happening in Africa? Things are a-changing. And what it used to be about essentially is preaching Christ or, or having churches that preach Christ or, or training leaders to do this. And, and now it's about doing social good things. Now, in the paper, he talks about the good place for doing good things. But he's saying, hey, wait a second. The church is losing its focus in the missionaries that it is sending. Well, guess why that might be? Because we're losing our focus on this side of the ocean. Doing lots of good things. But what are we called to do? We're called to preach Christ. That's what we're called to do. Might be good for us to learn a little history lesson too here. And my friend Joel references this historical figure as well. And the 
1900s, early 1900s, late 1800s, there was a professor at Princeton Seminary named J. Gresham Machen. Was committed to doing good things. But he called the church to do what it's been called to do, preach Christ. Back in that day, he saw the church as starting to do what's called social gospel and denying the real historic gospel. He wrote a famous book by now. It's a helpful book. I'd read it if I were you so we can learn something from history. It's called Christianity and Liberalism. Here's what was going on. You have all kinds of people denying Christian basics, denying the deity of Jesus, denying the bodily resurrection, denying the reality of atonement, um, denying the second coming. This is in Protestant liberalism. What are they going to do? How do they justify their existence? They start doing other good things and using Bible verses to show that Jesus was nice, so we're going to be nice. Jesus was just and he was for justice and so we're going to be for justice. And now all of a sudden, we have many good things we're doing in the world, but we're not doing what we're called to do. It's just the same deal over again. We would be good to learn from history. Now the problem is, the evangelicals, that means gospel believers, gospel preachers, that's what evangelical means. It has a lot of baggage to the term, but are looking like the old school theological liberals. We're still believing in the work of Jesus, but we sure are on a fast track to losing focus with our mission drift. To know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. A fourth guiding principle is know that Christians have dual citizenship. Know that Christians have dual citizenship. Philippians, I'm just going to go super fast because we already went there last week. Sorry for those of you just joining us. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. So Christians have heavenly citizenship. That would fit the alien and stranger idea. And yet we're still here, so we're aliens and strangers. So we have a a citizenship that's in the here and now. Also, uh, if we were to take the time to go there, the Apostle Paul grappled with this issue in the book of Acts where he's on trial. He's a Roman citizen and he demands his rights as a Roman citizen. He's also a heavenly citizen. And by the way, as he's on trial before Rome, he doesn't say, but I'm an apostle. Christendom. Constantine. Uh, he, he wasn't pre-Constantinian. Uh, he, he argues, I'm a Roman citizen, so give me my Roman rights. My point bringing it up is, we see both talked about in Scripture. Um, Jesus acknowledges uh, a temporariness to, to, to this distinction too. When Jesus is, is asked um, about idolatry, Caesar worship, because they had altars to Caesar and they really worship Caesar and animal sacrifice to Caesar, he says, give me a coin, right? Whose face is on the coin? It's Caesar's. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Now, we all know that Jesus knows that God is sovereign over all. But there was a recognition that in the here and now, before Christ returns and and exercises his dominion over all, with the government resting on his shoulders, as Isaiah prophesies, in the here and now, there's a sense in which there's, there's a real distinction between what is Caesar's and what is God's. Again, we know that God is over all the whole thing. But that, that just helps to support an argument for a dual citizenship. And here's where this gets practical. If there is such a thing, that tells me that you might have some responsibilities as a citizen of this temporary domain of Caesar. Obligations. Romans 13 would talk about that as well. Governing authorities, ultimately established by God, even though they're temporary. That's helpful. It's helpful to know. It's also helpful to know because it helps me to realize that if there's a dual citizenship thing going on, that the church can do its thing, the eternal, lasting, 
mission of the church and and yet I belong to that community but I also belong to this more general community and I'm not going to take the time to go there we'll talk about it at the conference um, the general community even that that we see established even uh, after the fall with Noah and all those living there's legitimacy to this commonness if there's dual citizenship yes I hope you're committed to the everlasting side of things but temporarily, seeking the good of the city, Jeremiah 29, as you wait for the new Jerusalem, there's some legitimacy here. Oh, let's reintroduce that passage from Jesus in Matthew 22. Love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. You should love your neighbor. And your neighbor's not just Christians. Your neighbor's anybody in need, right? Don't, 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 don't let me lose you here. If you have dual citizenship, you've, you've got some ultimate lasting responsibilities tied to the world of the church, if you will, and that which is to come. But you've got some temporary responsibilities over here because you're called to love your neighbor. You really are. I take it you, t- you, you should seek the good and welfare of Babylon, even though uh, it's not going to be ultimately lasting. This is actually a tremendous and helpful thing. It's a tremendous and helpful thing. Here's where it becomes problematic. It becomes problematic when we forget there are these two realms. And what we do like cultural fundamentalists sometimes, I won't ask for a show of hands if you're a recovering fundamentalist, um, is you say, this is what's lasting and this is all that's lasting. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. The mission of the church is to preach Christ. I withdraw and I isolate. Well, there's a lot of half-truths in that. There's a lot of truths in that. But that's not all there is to be said. Paul seemed to affirm his temporary citizenship. What about responsibilities over here? What about loving your neighbor? What about seeking the good of the city if we're aliens and strangers imitating Old Testament Israel? Now, think with me about this. Sometimes there's something in us that, that, that we know that there's right and wrong and, and we're Christians and we understand right and wrong and we start saying, you know what, this culture's jacked up. This stuff going on I see on television and, and as far as um, wrong being made right and right being made wrong and I'm reading this blog about it and that webpage about it and I'm, I got, I've got this feed and I'm looking at this. Ah! And what we do is we say, There's so much injustice. Somebody needs to do something about this. I think there's something good about that. I think it shows you're made in God's image. Shows you know something about the law of God. You know something about justice and right and wrong. But if we've been living in the world of cultural fundamentalism, isolationism, and we do nothing and we just retreat and retract and hide, eventually, you know, the the, the kettle blows. Somebody needs to do something. My pastor needs to do something. My church, why aren't they doing anything about this? You're right. Somebody does need to do something. Got a mirror? If the church is called as the church to preach Christ and to know nothing else among the watching world, we have a message of hope. Reconciliation, redemption. But you've got dual citizenship. Yeah, somebody needs to do something about this. And it ain't Omaha Bible Church. You've been made in the image of God. You're living with other fellow image bearers. Oh, by the way, even in light of what it says in Genesis, after the fall unbelievers are still acknowledged as made in the image of God. That's why we have the lex telionis, as it's called, eye for an eye. If you murder someone, your life should be taken because human beings are made in the image of God and that's to be upheld. Where I'm going with that is to say there's something positive, there's something good about this broken world. And they're your neighbor and you're supposed to love your neighbor and help them. How about this? Let's make it real practical. I think this is all really practical. That's why I get myself in trouble. It's so practical. Leave it all ethereal and it's not controversial. 
Who's your neighbor? Well, based upon Jesus' example and what he teaches, it's anybody who has a need. So you've got a house full of neighbors if you have kids, little ones that are related to you. Um, grandkids, if you have them, uh, they're your neighbors. Um, believers are neighbors. Uh, unbelievers are neighbors. Literal neighbors are neighbors. Your classmates are neighbors. Um, human beings on planet Earth are neighbors. And there are many things that are done that are hurting your neighbors. And they might hurt your neighbors more if unchecked. Somebody needs to do something. Omaha Bible Church is calling us to preach Christ. It's a very lean focus. But you're supposed to love your neighbor. It's not just that you can. You might have a moral obligation to. It's different than what you might be used to. So we don't now burden the church with getting the church to do things that we're supposed to do as individuals because the church has its calling. Instead, we do our part in the church and we do our part as individuals. And that's new for some of us. Not for everybody, but for some of us. It seems to fit the First Peter kind of example and the example of exiled Israel. Listen to this as far as a compliment to this. Abraham is justified by faith and is therefore to live and lead among the newly established people of God distinctly, Genesis 17.9. This would include religious distinctions with such things such as circumcision in response to the one true God, the Almighty. So, so Abraham is to be very isolated in one sense. Right? Nevertheless, Abraham lived among the godless, according to Genesis 12 to 25, and engaged in activities with his neighbors that were common to humanity. War in Genesis 14, commerce in Genesis 23, Morality in Genesis 20, where the pagan actually taught him about morality, interestingly enough. Political alliance in Genesis 21, all the while attempting to remain distinct in his devotion to his God in anticipation of a day when his descendants could be in the promised land, where there would not be any kind of distinction. There's partnership there. Not religious partnership, but cultural partnership. Kind of like Daniel. Kind of like Jeremiah talks about. I'm going to bounce that ball to you and say, do you look anything like that? I want you to. As a pastor, I so badly want you to. Isn't it interesting in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we're mandated not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What's he talking about? He's talking about religious ventures, spiritual ventures. That's forbidden. I know of a person who used that as their business model for their business. I think that's a foul. It's a total first-class foul. It's talking about something else. It's denying the legitimacy of the here and now citizenship existence. Talking about different things. As we blur the church and figure out what the church is and, and how it's different. One of the reasons the church is currently feeling, feeling compelled to do what we were never called to do is because Christians are not doing what Christians have in fact been called to do. I talked to a guy after first service and thought he was just going to chew me out because the sermon was too long. Um, no, he did Many other people did that. Um, he's a politically active guy. He's just, you know, just <sighs> he's right wing, man. God, guns, and government. I don't know. I mean, he's probably a Ted Nugent fan. I don't know. He's just to the... To the... He said, you know what? Basically, he said, this is so helpful. I'm not, I'm not quoting him. Basically, I'm, I've been upset with the church for not doing these things. But it makes sense that the church isn't called to do these things. But it also makes sense that I as an individual might be called to do some of these things. Go, oh, 
Number five, fifth, we'll go quickly, promise. Fifth guiding principle, value the work of fellow image bearers. Value the work of fellow image bearers. Here's my question for you. Do you know any unbelievers who do great things? Can you think of a famous unbeliever who's done some really amazing things? Yeah. There are all kinds. Last time I checked, Apple's not a Christian company. Um, Think about medicine. Think about technology. Think about science. Think about philosophy. Think about, think about, think about, think about, think about. Now, there have been Christians who've been involved in some of these amazing things, and I'm thankful for that. But think about how many non-Christians have been involved in these things. My next question for you is, how do you account for it? How do you explain that? Well, it's not really happening. (laughs) You know, it can be in denial. Well, it can't really be happening because I believe in the doctrine of total depravity. Well, I hope you believe in the doctrine of total depravity, the reality that Romans 3, no one does good, no, not one. But what's it talking about? No one does good in the true, truest sense of the term, that no one does true good with perfect motives that are seeking to glorify God. Yeah, no one does good, no, not one. Romans 3.10, absolutely. Psalm 14, same thing, absolutely. Well, I believe in uh, Ephesians 2, that we're dead in trespasses and sins. Absolutely, we're spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. And God has to make us alive. And unbelievers are spiritually dead, and they don't do any true capital G good. I'm totally with you. So how do you explain how unbelievers do all these amazing things? Spiritually, 1 Corinthians chapter. 2 verse 14, they cannot understand spiritual things. 2 plus 2 is 77. Spiritually, how do you explain it though? We can either say they don't do any of these things and how dumb is that? Because they do. And we benefit from them. They do it because they're made in the image of God. Right? They're made in the image of God. And that image, though it's been perverted is still there. Again, Genesis 9, off the top of my head. Post-flood. Still there. And there's still a place for us to see the good that they do and to benefit from what they do. And, insofar as it doesn't compromise our commitment to the one true and living God, partner with them in these things. This paradigm, this perspective will allow you to not deny reality and to say, God, you are to be glorified because you've made human beings in such an amazing way. How about even more amazing in another level that it's broken and they're rebels and they're still able to do some of these lowercase g good things that benefit us as believers. This is amazing. We can value that. We should value that. Let's move on to number six, the sixth guiding principle for honoring Christ in your life. Question trends like redeeming culture. Question trends like redeeming culture. That's a hot one right now. I'm gonna, I'll get emails for this one. Not from any of you. If you want to be cool and you want to be hip and you want to really be where it's at, we are transforming culture at Omaha Bible Church. We are redeeming culture at Omaha Bible Church and we are transforming the city and redeeming the city and on and on and on it goes. I want to be hip and cool and I don't want to be a stick in the mud. But I also want to speak forthrightly as a Christian. I also hear this voice of J. Gresham Machen speaking from history. That sounds a lot like old school Protestant liberalism by those people who took their eye off the ball and did lots of other things and got distracted. But here's what's more important than J. Gresham Machen. Listen to what the scripture says about redemption. Galatians 3.13, Titus 2.14, 1 
1 Peter chapter 1. I hate it that we're rushing, uh, but in another sense, uh, you're thankful. Listen to what it says in Galatians 3.13. He redeemed us. Titus 2.14. He gave himself for us to redeem us. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were not redeemed with perishable things, but with precious blood. Let me say it really awkwardly again. Galatians 3.13. He redeemed us. Completed work. Completed action. Done by Jesus. Guess who's in the work of redeeming? Jesus is in the work of redeeming and he doesn't call us to do his work of redeeming. Not only that, it's already completed. He redeemed us. Oh, and by the way, he's talking about sinners like you and like me. He's not talking about Omaha, Nebraska. He's not looking to redeem Omaha other than he's redeeming individuals. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. By his historic work, absolutely. Do we influence the culture? Uh, Absolutely. Do we want to make an influence in culture? Absolutely. Do we want to play our part? Absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. But it's a category error to say we're redeeming culture. That sounds like Protestant liberalism. Gospel deniers. We're not denying the gospel, who, those of us who talk this way, but we're sounding like those people and it might be good to at least know that. It might be good to know that it's a category error. We're preaching Christ who redeemed us. Oh yes, let's influence and do our part in Babylon. We have the fruit of the Spirit. Let, let, let's let our light shine too. Let's be salt and light because we are. Absolutely. Let's not deny that. But we're getting really strange here in this one. The, the most outspoken proponent of cultural transformation in our camp that I know. This is a raging debate. A friend when it comes to the gospel. Somebody I appreciate and like. The most outspoken person in, in the whole issue was mentored by someone and did his studies under someone, same person, that wrote a book on evangelism that I had to review recently. The social gospel to the max. His definition of the gospel was not about the historic work of Jesus. It was about fruit of the gospel, doing the right thing, but fruit of the gospel was labeled gospel. You just got to know this is not a good road we want to head down. And I'm passionate about it as a pastor because I do want you to influence the culture. But I want Omaha Bible Church to preach Christ because that's the best thing for everybody and to know nothing else among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that will make an impact. Yes. Absolutely. Otherwise, what happens is what the gospel means becomes something else and it gets blurred and then the church loses its focus and this, this is not good. I'd want to ask you, what, what, what is the gospel? I like what Mark Dever says in his church in, in Washington, D.C. You can't be a member of the church unless you can explain the gospel in less than a minute. And it has to be right. You can't sound like you belong to a different religion. The gospel is the good news about the work of Jesus. Specifically, his redemptive work. That's what the gospel is. You can read 1 Corinthians 15. You can read Romans chapter 1. You can read... That's what it is. The gospel is not what we live. You don't live the gospel. By the way, if I live the gospel, it would be a false religion. Because I'm a sinner. And I, I can't just say, you should be like me. I don't love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, nor my neighbor as myself. Neither do you. That's not good news. Well, you know, what we should do is preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Well, that's heresy. <laughs> because the gospel is something you can't live. It's a category in the Bible for the work of Jesus in history because it's already done what he did, right? Right? 
It's a huge category error. We love that quote so much, supposedly from St. Francis of Assisi. We love it so much, but it's it's totally not right. It's totally wrong, and it totally fits social gospel, cultural transformation, and we just have to do all these good deeds. Guess what? Christianity is not about you and your good deeds. Christianity is about the good deed of Jesus. And if I sound like a preacher, it's because I am one. Think about it. It's the good news about what Jesus accomplished, that he rose from the dead. And what do we do? Live the gospel? Impossible. Impossible. Read Romans 10. How will they know without an example? No! How will they know without a preacher? Because faith comes by looking at people's example. No! Faith comes by... Dumbo, you know, let's think. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. It's about Him. I'm sorry if I'm offending you, but I'm doing it on purpose if need be. Let's, let, let's have a citywide, national, worldwide regrasping of what my friend from Africa wants to have happen. The gospel is not what you do. The gospel is what Christ has done. And that does lead to change. Absolutely leads to change. But the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So important. I so badly want Omaha Bible Church to feel this and know this and own this and make a difference. Number seven, seventh guiding principle. If I had enough money, I'd buy you all lunch because you're kind and gracious. But see, it's just proof I don't love my neighbor as I should. I need a savior. (laughs) Number seven, don't forget the second coming. Don't forget the second coming. Practically, we end up doing this sometimes. We're going to transform our culture, and it's going to change, and it's going to get better. And then, uh, because it's eter- these, these differences we're making are eternal. Oh, wait a second. That passage we read from Second Peter earlier, it really is true. It is all going to burn. And the only time and the only way true, lasting cultural transformation will ever stick is when Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, returns. And then it does say at the end of that passage we read earlier in verse 13. Verse 13 of chapter 3. Righteousness will dwell. But that's tied to the new heavens and the new earth. So many times we have, we have a wrong understanding. We act as if Jesus has already come back. He hasn't. And I'm not here promoting a certain view of the end times per se. I'm just saying, he's got to come before there's lasting cultural transformation. So while we want to be engaged in it in the here and now, we're fooling ourselves if we think this is capital K kingdom work. We need the king to be here before we have capital K kingdom work. Got to remember that. Okay. I'm about ready to repent. Finally, just, just two, be- two benefits. Two benefits of this. If we have this kind of perspective, the first benefit will be it'll protect Omaha Bible Church against mission drift. It'll protect Omaha Bible Church against mission drift. The second thing that it will do, benefit-wise, it'll protect you and me from cultural isolation and retraction. I've got a list, I think, of seven benefits. I'm just giving two. It shows you that I'm growing in my spiritual growth during this sermon, showing self-control. Okay? Number two, it'll, it'll, it'll help you to not withdraw from culture. You've got permission to go for it. You're made in the image of God. Other people are too. Love your neighbor as yourself. Seek the good of Babylon, knowing that it's Babylon, not Jerusalem. Go for it. Not just that you can. I'm going to say you should. There are things happening even right now. Think of a real-life scenario, then we'll be done. There are things that are happening in the world that you live in, in the city you live in, in the country you live in, that aren't good for your neighbor. What are you going to do about it? There are things that more than likely, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I work for a nonprofit organization. Heard that before? Some of you have. There are things that more than likely will adversely affect Omaha Bible Church as an institution in the United States of America. Maybe not. What are you going to do about it? 
Because Omaha Bible Church as a, as a church is not going to fight it. You'd better. Because you're a citizen of this country if you are one. Omaha Bible Church is going to be here to do one thing. To preach a message of great love, compassion, hope, reconciliation, restoration. Because we're going to preach Christ. And that is the one string on our guitar. And that is what we're going to offer people regardless of what kind of sinners they are. We're not political. We can't be. We dare not be. But as a citizen of this world, you can afford not to be. And you can honor Jesus Christ by doing so. Because He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, the returning Savior. Well, thanks for loving me and listening. I hope you do it out of love for Christ. Father, thank you so much for hard issues that we have to face in this world. And it does cause us to realize that this is not the ultimate, that we are awaiting. We're groaning with the rest of creation like Romans 8 says. We're groaning and longing for that day when Christ returns. We're looking forward to that day when every right will be called right. We're looking forward to that day when, when righteousness dwells on the earth, justice dwells on the earth. In the meantime, help us to do our part as is appropriate and help Omaha Bible Church to not be ashamed of the gospel. Help other churches too. And Lord, have this create a lot of good conversation and discussion as we seek to honor Christ. Do give us a great conference in a couple of weeks. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And with that, let's go and honor Christ in our callings.